Well, this morning is the last sermon in the sermon series, Sensible Faith. And it isn't always the case that you end on one that is kind of a capstone, but this one leans fairly heavily on the previous five. And so uh, I I do feel uh, like I should encourage you that if you're here either for the first time or if you haven't had a chance to listen to all of them, not, not because they're great, but because they kind of build on one another, that we do podcast, and you can go to the website, and you can download it or podcast it. It's free. And, uh, or you can ask for CDs, and, and the church will be generous enough to make you some CDs. But um, I apologize if you're joining in, and it feels like we're talking, I'm reaching at things that you haven't actually heard. Likewise, when I began this sermon series, I said it would be a somewhat abstract series, um, uh, we're going to approach the Lord from a more abstract way than is normal or that we're normally accustomed to. And uh, this morning is going to be, uh, certainly going to be feel that way, I think, for some of you. Because we're going to be dealing with some abstract ideas as we uh, close out this idea of the senses. So with that said, we'll begin uh, this final sense, which is the sense of something bigger. I'm reading a book. I'm almost done. It was a book written in the 1800s. It's a small book. It's barely 100 pages by a Shakespearean scholar who was also an armchair mathematician. And the name of the book is Flatland. And this book, Flatland, is uh, it's, it's really neat, actually. The book is about a square, um, a humble square who lives in a flat world. And uh, so... He lives kind of in a page, if you can imagine this, in a theoretical page. His whole world, and in his world there's circles and squares and polygons and triangles and lines, and there's a whole aristocracy based upon how many sides you have. He's a humble square. And he lives in this world, and his entire existence is understood along this plane. So, you know, even when we think he lives in a page, we can kind of look down, and if we could look down on it, we could see the squares moving around and bumping into triangles and all of that. But that's not how he sees it. Okay? He sees his world like this, kind of along the line. So that everything that is, even when something that is like a square, in reality to him, it appears that the, as though it is a line. Does that make sense? Yeah, so if you're looking at a penny down, but if you take a penny and go all the way to the edge of the table, it looks like a line. And they can determine area or, or the shape of something by touching it. The way they introduce themselves in the book is by saying, may I feel you? Because they need to know, am I talking to a triangle or am I talking to a polygon? Because I have to defer certain respects. So they, they feel one another to see what they, what they are. And that's kind of how, how the world of Flatland is. It's a, it's a two-dimensional world of length and width. They have no concept of anything else. Well, this, this humble square was uh, visiting with his grandkid one night, who is a polygon, um, as is the fashion in Flatland. And they have a conversation um, where the son, the, the, the father's, the grandfather's teaching his son about area, length and width, length and width. And he says, so something that's three units long and three units wide is three squared. And the grandson says, well, what if it was to the third power, three cubed? And the humble square says, that's silly. We don't talk that way. <laughs> and he sends him to bed. <laughs> well, 
It's on this evening, and I'm ruining the story, but it's still worth reading. It's on this evening that something absolutely unbelievable happens, and that is that a sphere from a different universe visits Flatland. It's, in fact, it's a sphere from Spaceland. And it visits the square on Flatland. But the way it does it is the, the Flatland, can't, he can't look and see a sphere because his land is flat. And so the sphere descends into Flatland, and what do you think he sees? He sees a line. In fact, if he runs up against it, he realizes it's a circle. And the circle, the sphere says, well, I'm not a circle, I'm a sphere. And he, the, whole, the rest of the book is about this humble square trying to understand a third dimension when he lives, in fact, in a two-dimensional world. And, in fact, he actually, before this, has a 24-hour trip. He dreams, and he actually goes to uh, Lineland, where everybody lives in a one-dimensional world. And so he kind of lords over Lineland because they can't understand his length and its width. And then now he's stuck with this sphere who's from Spaceland. And the sphere even takes him on a, a kind of a, a visual journey for one day to Spaceland, where he gets to see what the third dimension's like. This is really neat, isn't it? <laughs> really neat. Actually, the story is much more political than it is even uh, abstract. Well, he comes home from Spaceland and he says you're not going to believe what I saw. And I'm, I'm building now because I haven't got to this part. This is about what happens. I know the story. He says, you're not going to believe. And he begins to tell people there is this third power that, by which things can be measured. And, but he can't quite explain it. But you can actually say three to the third power and try to define a length and a width and then some other dimension that exists in fullness but that we can only share of in part. And he's thrown in prison for being insane. In fact, it's one point in the book um, that he actually, in visiting with the sphere, says, maybe there is a universe of a fourth power. And the sphere says, bah humbug. you got to be kidding. We are it, a third power. Well, that's the book, Flatland. I recommend it to you. Um, and it raises some uh, profound notions about the reality uh, that we can perceive. We certainly uh, don't like to think of ourselves as though we live in flat land, but in a way, we, we probably do live in some kind of flat land. We have these, these certain abilities to perceive and understand things, and, and this morning I'm going to refer to those as the five senses, or the five. We have our five senses by which we observe all that is around us, and they are, in a sense, I'm not talking spatial dimension here, I'm talking perceptive dimension, they are the instruments or the dimensions by which we build reality, these five senses. Now, there could be more. Whether there are or not is beyond us um, because we're stuck here in flatland. But I will say this, that we should guard against dimensional arrogance like those around the humble square, when we start to talk about the, uh, the possibility of there being something beyond us that interacts with us, and even when it interacts with us, it interacts with us in such a way that it appears flat to us, even though it's not flat at all. It's, it has dimensions beyond what we can imagine, but in order to enter into our reality, it has to condescend itself and appear in a way that we can measure and touch and feel and smell and taste. 
and understand. We have these five senses, the, the five, and they are, are kind of the way, the virtual way we kind of understand reality. Even when we think of an idea, do you ever think of this? When you think of an idea, it doesn't even exist in sense yet. But we still think of it kind of caged in virtual senses. When you're thinking of you know, a car you want to one day own, you can imagine that in your mind. You can even imagine something that has never existed. That's amazing. Like Orville and Wilbur Wright, imagining flight before it had ever, ever, ever participated. The mind has this amazing ability to not only use the five senses, but to own the five senses in a creative way that it can take something that has no sense about it in the mind and produce it. And what's happened, particularly in Western culture, our culture, the one we're living in, is we have mastered the five senses in such a way that we feel like we've got it. We understand how to use sight and sound and smell and touch and taste in such a scientific and pervasive way that we've taken the miraculous out of just about everything. And this is the subtle, this is the subtlety, this is a dangerous subtlety that, that we're going to be kind of wrestling with this morning. I think it even happens in our life of faith. It's this. So the five that we were given, we use those to describe, to describe the truth that is around us, to describe reality, these five senses. That's how we des- de- describe reality that is here. And that's true. I don't deny that one bit. That's how we see and perceive reality. But there is a subtle yet very significant difference to saying that our five senses describe reality and saying that our five senses encapsulate reality. It's very different to say that our five senses, when when reality passes through flatland, our five senses can kind of embrace it and understand it in certain ways. That's one entire thing, rather than saying that all truth in the universe is somehow bound within the five senses. That's much more arrogant, and it's a much bigger statement, even though it doesn't sound that much bigger. And so we're going to ask this question from, from a biblical perspective. So obviously I think the answer is no. But we're going to ask this question this morning. Does truth live in a flat land or does it pass through? Does it pass in and out? And are our five senses a gift of God to understand something that is beyond us? Is there something bigger? That's our goal this morning. So if you would please, in your opening your Bibles, turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Genesis, Exodus. So you're like in the 50s if you're using a Bible in front of you. Now as you're turning to Exodus 25, I just want to let you know where we are in the biblical story. Um, in Exodus, God saves his people from, out of slavery from Egypt. By Exodus 25, they have been brought across the Red Sea. They have been brought to the mountain of God. The mountain of God has been cordoned off, and the people of God have been told, you're not my people yet, so don't touch my mountain. And they're down there, and God calls Moses and Joshua. Interestingly enough, Joshua follows Moses partway up the mountain. Um, But God calls Moses up the mountain, and when Moses goes up the mountain, he receives, what what does he receive? 
the Ten Commandments, right? We all know he receives the Ten Commandments. He gets a lot more than that. He gets seven chapters of stuff. Uh, He goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments and the Covenant, but he also gets a number of directions on, on how things should look, particularly relating to the tabernacle. And so where we are in Exodus 25 is we are at a conversation, God and Moses, on top of the mountain, as he's receiving these instructions, but Moses, the people, are down and don't yet know anything. Okay? That's, that's the setting we're in. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 of Exodus 29. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skin dyed, red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make me have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then the Lord begins to show him the pattern. Now the first uh, idea we're going to wrestle with this morning is this, that the five senses, that the five senses alone are insufficient to derive God's truth. Let me say that again. The, The five senses are insufficient to derive truth. By themselves, they cannot effectively derive truth. We need to be shown truth. Something needs to something or someone needs to show truth to us. We cannot with our own faculties derive it correctly on our own. And by saying this, I'm not saying that truth is beyond sense. Truth is not beyond sense in the sense that it isn't here. We can't see it. I'm simply saying that we cannot effectively with our own senses capture what's true and what's false and build an, a kind of an objective picture of reality unless it's shown to us. If it were true, the more we would understand the senses, it seems like an appropriate corollary to say the more, the more better we'd be. Right? That... As mankind, if mankind, if we were evolving through the senses, if we were understanding these senses better, that we would be progressively advancing morally towards absolute truth. That should be the understanding. If there is truth and the five senses could coordinate off, that would be the case. But does it feel that way? Does it feel that way to you? Does it somehow feel drastically better in our culture right now than it did 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago? Or does it feel about the same? I'm not asking, did you have cable? I'm saying fundamentally, the things that make culture, are they drastically improved, and I mean drastically, over the recorded annals of human history, or are they about the same? 
When we read scripture, do we find a drastically different image of what family looks like? Or is it about the same with similar problems? I say it is quite nearly, in essence, the same. Different in the trimmings, but in substance, very much the same. Have we solved world hunger by now? Is there less war today than there was 10 years ago? We're still in the same war we were in 10 years ago. Some historians say this is the bloodiest century of humankind. We had the war to end all wars three wars ago. There's peace. Is there equality? Is there a greater equality? Well, maybe in pockets. And don't think to yourself now. Don't, when you start to think, well, there is improvement in my life. My question is, does it come from the derivation of your own five senses or is it coming from some other source? I'm saying from the derivation of our five senses, has that been able to take the global community anywhere? I would say this. We know more, but we are not better. Because the senses alone are insufficient to fully describe or to lead us to the truth. Look at the scripture here. Look how, watch this. God's particular. Look at verse 8. After he tells them to collect all these things, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Do you see what God's doing? God is saying to him, Look, I'm going to display my truth to you. I've given you these five senses. I'm going to display my truth to you in a way that you can understand because you live in a flat land and I I live in some other space land or some land above that. But I'm going to descend and in some creative ways I'm going to create truth or, or put truth in your land so that you can be described. And you have to follow this plan exactly. You have to follow this pattern exactly or you'll miss it. That's the implication here. But we say God goes to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, or Moses goes to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Moses goes to the mountain to get a picture of truth for the people. And then he comes down. And he doesn't just do it for for a few days. He does it for chapters. So he's the pattern. Well, here's the ark, and then the table, and then the lampstand, the tabernacle, and the ephod, and the breastpiece, the priests, the curtain the most holy place, all of these things are being added and God doesn't simply do it here, God does it in, in, in whole. I mean, Scripture, Scripture is constantly different images and different ideas to allow God to describe truth for us in unique ways. And it starts, it starts before Exodus 25, it starts page 1 and it goes to Revelation 22. The whole thing is God's way of going, look, I'm going to give you a pattern that I want you to follow exactly. Because our five senses are insufficient to derive truth on their own. We need someone or something to guide it. Because truth is really not part of flatland. It's part of some other place. And it passes in and it passes out. And we see it for a moment. And we try to, but we cannot circumscribe truth. We can simply describe truth. And I'll give you a perfect example of the opposite. Sometimes the world's response is, well, no, that's not exactly true. We we can understand truth. In fact, the senses are all we have. And so all that is is described by them. 
And I kind of call this your gut feeling about things. You're, you're determining truth by the seat of your pants. The way you see it and perceive it and understand it is determining your own truth. You know, when, I, when we fly, we, uh, we, we have this phrase, you know, he's flying by the seat of his pants. You've probably heard something like that. It's the seat of the pants idea. And it, it works if you're good. <laughs> if you're good and if you have a horizon. If you can see a horizon, then your seat of the pants really helps. You can feel the jet, and you can know what it's doing. And you can, there's this, it's almost this sixth sense, which is like the summation of all the others. But you have to be able to see the horizon. If you cannot see the horizon, if you fly at night, in a dark night, particularly over the ocean, where there is no cultural lighting, or if you're in the weather, your seat of the pants will kill you every single time. I'm saying without exception. I'm saying the only reason when you get on a United Airlines flight and make it to Denver on the red eye or L.A. is because they have instruments. You cannot fly at night or with no horizon reference and ever hope to trust your seat of your pants. Your feeling, your feeling will always lie to you. It is the hardest thing. It's the closest most pilots will ever come to killing themselves is dealing with what their body is telling them to do with what the instruments are telling them to do. You, you fly with a young wingman, you can see him out in the weather struggling, and you say, trust your instruments. Trust your instruments. And there's been times where I have to stare at my gauge, and if I take my eyes off of my gauge, my hand does this. And I have to, yeah, I mean, you have to force your hand to come back, and it's like you're fighting yourself because everything in your body is saying, it just doesn't feel that way. I can trust my senses. But you need some indicator to tell you what's real. Watch what happens to the, to, the, to the Hebrew people. Leave your marker here, but turn to 32, chapter 32. So Moses is up on the mountain getting the exact image of God from God. This is the exact representation that God wants, the pattern God wants. Meanwhile, down on the foot of the mountain are the people. And time is passing. And as time is passing, they're beginning to wonder, where's Moses? And they have such a trivial version of God, right? They're, they live so much in flatland. Their thought is, what's, what could possibly take so long? I mean, how big is truth anyway? It's length and it's width, for crying out loud. Where's Moses? And so time goes by, and they finally can't handle it anymore. And then they say this, 32 verse 1, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron said, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. That is morality by the seat of the pants. Here, God's saying to Moses, I'm giving you a pattern very carefully. I'm going to spend 40 days sharing with you this pattern. When you get down the mountain, then you're going to build a tabernacle, and you're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in it, and then I'll really start talking. But right now, just to get the, the tabernacle going, here's the pattern. And down there, they're saying, we can figure this out. Let's, let's gather what we know together. Let's place what we know together. Let's not consult the Lord, and let's figure out the truth. I find consistently 
that scientific clarity exists alongside moral ambiguity. The more clear thinking we find ourselves scientifically, the more unthinking and nonsensical we become morally. Because what we begin to do is try to imagine truth as though we've circumvented it with our knowledge rather than submitting to a truth that comes and goes as it pleases and comes from somewhere else and is not bound by our five senses. The five senses are insufficient to describe, fully describe truth on their own. Here's the second idea, that God has a sensible path in leading us towards the truth. So if the five senses are insufficient, well, we can trust now that God has a sensible way of trying to describe truth to us, trying to lead us in the truth. He's laid a, he's laid a scent out for us to kind of follow, or he's, or he's put breadcrumbs down for us, or he's drawn signposts, or he's, you can hear his voice calling out in the wilderness so we can kind of come towards him and draw towards him so that the Lord hasn't left us to our own senses. He's giving us something else. Read with me here in chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. God says this to Moses. He says, Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of, of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark of the testimony, put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover pure of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece. With the cover at two ends, the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So what's the goal? If you do everything right, he says, then I'll meet with you and I'll talk with you. Do what I command and then I will, I will be there for you and I will describe truth for you. And look how it is. God's laid out. Just imagine, did you just even feel how, you, how sensed your mind was during all this? Acacia wood and gold and cherubs. I mean, there's just images just overflowing in our minds. And God gives these images and he lays them out in a logical path that it all makes sense. He says, construct a wooden box. And then he says, decorate it in a way that has a most holy disposition about it. Gold on the inside, gold on the outside. And he says, this, this box has to have poles. And why? Because God says, because I'm leading you somewhere. We're not staying at the mountain and I have to lead you somewhere. So give me poles so that I can lead you where I want to go. And then he says, in the box, 
in the box I want you to put things. And here he mentions the testimony. But ultimately, he says three things I want you to put in. I want you to put in the commandments, which represent the covenant. I want you to put in the staff, which Moses and Aaron used to display the power of God in Egypt. And I want you to put in a jar of manna. And so God's saying, whatever, whatever this is that's going to travel along where I'm going to meet with you, I want it to be built upon and contain evidence of the fact that I've redeemed you, of the fact that I sustain you, and of the fact that I'm in covenant with you. That everywhere I go, that is there as a reminder. And then God says, on top of that, on top of that, I want this cover to be called the atonement cover. The atonement cover. From day one, our sins have been an issue here. That from the very first design Moses, God gives to Moses, he says, This whole thing is about atonement. I want this whole cover to be atonement. And this is where the priest would sprinkle the blood one day a year. They'd sprinkle it on the atonement cover so that the Lord would overlook the sins of the people. And he says, and then over that, I want these these cherubs, these heavenly attendants is what they are. And he says, there they lean forward, and the Hebrew people understood this as becoming what they call the mercy seat. This was the mercy seat of God. This is where God sat and displayed his mercy over the people. Do you see how God uses our senses to build his redemptive truth? I'm going to be with you everywhere you go. In fact, it is my design to travel with you and to lead you. As a mark of me, I want you to always remember that I have redeemed you, that I sustain you, and that I am in covenant with you. And that I am all these things because of atonement. Only because of atonement. If atonement didn't cover these things, I would not be in covenant with you. I would not have redeemed you, and I would not sustain you. And over all this, you should know that I sit on a throne of mercy. Now, all of this was designed to be seen. In fact, God even made, he gifted two designers. I think chapter 31 of Exodus, he actually gives these two guys, he said, I'm putting my spirit in them, and they're awesome artists. Let them go crazy, he says. They're the best. And the strange thing is, is that it could not be seen. This is that irony that keeps surfacing in this whole sermon series. That God uses our senses, and he devises our senses to do so many things, and then at the same time, he says, and by the way, you can't look at it. So in some way, you know that God has laid this path out. We know from his scripture that he has this path for us. But at the same time, he says it's beyond the veil and you cannot look at it. And it isn't as though we could look at God if we went behind the veil. There is not even an image of God. And it isn't as though we, could, we can't go behind the veil because we're giving some kind of artificial reverence to the God. Like as though this is some pagan God and there's a, there's a statue of him behind. And if you pay enough, then you can go see. By the way, it's quite ironic that all the idols of Flatland, they love to be seen. Do you ever think of this? It's their hobby. It's to show themselves. Only God, who is from another land, says, you can't, even, you can't even begin to imagine what I look like. Even his attitude shows he's from some other place. The Dagon and Astra and Moloch and Baal and money and sex and beauty, all of these things say, look at us, look at us. Look at us. Come into our temple. Look how fancy our God is. You can buy our gods and stick them on your windowsill and carry them in your pocket and trust in them and wear them on your necklace and and say prayers by them and do all these things. All these things are these icons that give you hope. And God says, 
I can lead you to truth, but you cannot look at me because I am, I am beyond you. God is, God, not only can God not be circumvented by, by our five senses, we can't even approach the fullness of God with our five senses. He's beyond our senses. He's not nonsense. He's beyond sense. And it's here I just think I need to remind us when we have our doubts and our concerns about what is God doing when we don't understand that God's fullness is beyond our human experience. We need to kill this habit of simplifying God. You know, some of you, particularly if you're new to the faith or if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you read one story where God troubles you, you need to remind yourself that is one story. It's a page in a very big book. It's a page. Allow, allow the one image of God to be balanced by the other image of God and the other image of God and the other image of God. We need a life of perspectives about God. And even then, we're not getting a fullness of who he is. He's more than one story. He's more than one God experience. If you think the Spirit told you to do something and it doesn't resonate with the other truth, I would say be suspicious of any one thing. His will and his work are allowed to, be, to extend beyond your timeline. When you're wondering, what is God doing? You need to trust that he is allowed to extend himself beyond your timeline and your time limit and your calendar. You may not even live to see what he's doing. So, so Abraham and Hebrews, they attribute faithfulness and glory to Abraham because he held on by faith to the promises of God, it says, even though in his own lifetime he would not see the manifest fulfillment of those very same promises. That's faith. It's a sense of something bigger. It does not have to be fulfilled in your timeline. It doesn't even have to be fulfilled in your life story. You wonder, why did God do something to you? It may be that you're some cameo actor in someone else's story. You, you are not even privy to know what he's doing. He's beyond our story. He's beyond our ability to understand. He's beyond our capacity to, to engineer and incorporate ourselves so that we don't need his help. He's beyond us in every one of these ways. He has not promised us that we would fully understand. He's called us to trust that there's something bigger. First Corinthians, Paul writes this, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I fought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And he says this, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. We're in flatland. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. We cannot describe the fullness of God with our senses. He is beyond us. He is not nonsense. He is beyond sense. So how does this reconcile with Christ? This has been the challenge. This has been a keen challenge in the sermon series. How continually do we talk about an unapproachable God of the Old Testament who can't be seen or, or touched who most people never even hear, who's beyond the veil, who's beyond experience. How do we talk about that time and time and time again and say, this is true. This is true. And yet deal with the reality that Jesus Christ was 
came to earth to be seen and heard and touched, that we are the aroma of Christ, that we share in his body and his blood for new life. How can both of those, how are they reconciled? Doesn't make sense. Or maybe it's beyond sense. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. If that's the case, then how come the fullness of deity that is presented to us at the tabernacle doesn't seem to manifest itself the same way? Well, I am at a loss. I think ultimately the answer is it's beyond my senses. But this is what I can say. I have found that flatland helps me. This idea that God, the fullness of God, is a sphere in my flat little world. And that when Christ enters into our world, he enters into our world and he appears as a circle. He is fully God. He is as much a part of the sphere as, as he ever was. But the most that we can conceive is the circle. That's the best way I can understand this, is that when, I, when, when I, the Christ I observe in Scripture has by himself placed his immutable, divine attributes upon the shelf and has condescended himself in such a holy way as to say, I will appear flat because there's a flat people that need to see the appearance of God. Even though I am every bit a sphere. Even now, when I am a circle, I am also a sphere. I'm just being seen as a circle. Turn to John 1. It's, I think it's 736 in your Bible. John 1. Throughout the whole time, throughout the whole time of Christ's life, you get this sense. You get this sense that he's in a flat land, but he's from a space land. You get the sense that he's here, but he's not from here. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, no one has seen the Father, but someone who has been with the Father and has come down. I have seen the Father. Someone who says, I'm one, I and the Father are one. It's almost as though he's a circle and a sphere. It's almost as though he's participating in two identities. One humbled identity on our behalf and one glorified identity that cannot be let go of. He's simply humbling himself in. And in the two sides, John 1 verses 1 through 14 represent this so well. It begins with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's a sphere. He is a sphere. And then it says this in John 14, 114, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's literally, he tabernacled among us. We have, look at this, God we can't see, listen to this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now listen to this. For the fullness of his grace we have all received, one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. There is this great condescension of Christ. And for some reason, when he has somehow placed humanity on, there's this one time I was in a nuclear sub. This is a strange one. I was in a nuclear sub, and it was, it's weird to be that close to a nuclear reactor. 
And because, you know, I had a top secret clearance, I went back into the engine room, and I was back, and I, ha I was leaning on the reactor core, which was this thick lead wall. And it was just eerie to me to think, I am standing feet, two, three feet away, maybe ten, away from nuclear explosions. And yet I'm safe. And I feel this is what Christ has done with his person, with the person of God. Is he taking on his humanity? He's like placed lead walls on his divinity. And that's what he's done. It's like for, for Christ to enter into our land, he's assumed the flesh. He's limited himself. And there is behind this lead wall the glorious power of the divine God. And it's, it's safe to touch because he's taken on such a humble demeanor about his own estate. Christ, who's far greater than us by dimensions we cannot even measure, has come not simply to show us the clear image of God, but to do something that is beyond our capacity. Purity is beyond us. True holiness is beyond us. Sinlessness is beyond us. It's, our, it's the fallenness that confines us to flatland. We are in flatland because we're sinful. We have lost a dimension of our lives. There was a one point when we were created, we were created in space land. And on the day that we ate of the fruit, we were condemned to live in flat land. And now Christ has to condescend himself to be with us and to save us. The five senses are not sufficient to define reality. We need someone to guide. And Christ is the fulfillment of of God in bodily form. Every image of all of Scripture that points to redemption points to Jesus.